On the second day, the heads of the father's houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra, the scribe, in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booze during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booze as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booze for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate, and in the square at the, and in the, square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from, from the captivity made booze as well, and lived in the booze from the days of Jeshua, or Joshua, the son of Nun, to the day that the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Thank you, Ron. You may be seated. Shall we pray? Lord, we love how you, you paint pictures for us in your word to help us grasp things and understand your heart and understand the lives that we're living. We're on a, we're on a journey in between. For many of us, maybe most of us, we've, we've come to Jesus as our Passover lamb. And we've been brought out of slavery and bondage. And we've been placed into the body of Christ and into Christ by the Holy Spirit, who's been placed in us. But now, Lord, we're journeying towards our destination, the city that's not made with hands, the eternal realm. And so shine light upon our lives this morning, Lord. Speak to those who maybe don't know Jesus yet that today would be their day. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, when the first summer rolled around after Pam and I moved to Idaho with our three kids, um, we decided to go camping. And uh, Idaho is a beautiful outdoorsy state and pretty much everybody goes camping here. And so someone from uh, our young church at that point lent us a pop-up trailer. So, so we hitched it up and off we went uh, up into the mountains to this campground. And we get to our spot and we get a lay of the land. We begin to set up and after four, five, eight hours figuring in how the pop-up camper thing. Um, we weren't given instructions. I thought, can't be too hard. There must be a button. You hit it, it pops up. I don't know. And uh, so as I'm trying to figure out the camper, Pam is, is uh, kind of, 
you know, getting the food supplies out of the vehicle, organizing things. Our three children, uh, six, four, and two at that time, more or less, are running around the woods, as you would expect. And uh, our youngest, Kelsey, falls and she gets scraped up. So she's screaming and crying. And there's a stream that flowed, oh, probably 20, maybe 30 feet from our spot. So we were living in this constant fear uh, of our kids getting swept away in the stream and then getting eaten by wolves downstream or something. And then it started raining. And who knows what happens when rain hits dirt? It makes mud. And so now our children have become little mud people. And, and, and the pop-up camper still hasn't popped up yet. And we just are having problems. And the result of all this is that we, we tapped out. We, we were cured of camping uh, <laughs> on that day. So as comedian Jim Gaffigan said, we concluded we're indoorsy people. <laughs> At least until our kids get grown up. Well, in our passage, we have the heads of the tribes, the fathers of the families gathering together, asking to meet with Ezra, the priest, for Bible study and the Levites. And so they are reading the scriptures, and as they are, these men, these leaders, they come to a passage that says all the people of Israel at a certain time, at a certain day in the year, they should dwell in booths. That is uh, a temporary housing. We would say a tent uh, or a hut that kind of a thing. And they would do so for seven days with their families, and they would do that in and around Jerusalem. Everybody coming to Jerusalem and then building their hut, living in it for a week with their families. It's called the Feast of Sukkot in Hebrew, or the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths in English. So we read it, but we'll read it again. Nehemiah 8.13, on the second day, the heads of the father's houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites, they came together to Ezra, the scribe, in order to study the words of the law. That's the Bible, right, for them. The Torah, the scrolls would roll out. And they found in it the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths. They should be in tents during the feast of the seventh month, that it should be proclaimed and published in all the towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills, bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, other leafy trees to make your booths, to build your huts for your families to dwell in for that week together. I can imagine the scene. Ezra's reading and somebody says, wait, wait, Ezra, can you, can you back up just a little bit and read that again? And he, he reads it again, that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of Sukkot, and all, all families should dwell, should go into the hills and gather branches to build huts, and they're looking at each other. Is, that, is God telling us in his word that we're to have a week-long camping trip with our families all together, the people of Israel? And they're going, I think that's what it's saying. And everyone is like, all right, let's do it. 
Let's do what the Bible is saying to do. Listen, when it comes to Bible study and Bible learning and so on, the blessing comes with the doing. It's the doing that really matters. After blowing the minds of the disciples by washing their feet, Jesus said in John 13, 16, truly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And so the disciples famously, before the foot washing, they were arguing about who would be the greatest in the kingdom. Peter, you know, I'm gonna be the greatest, no doubt. And you know, somebody else, no you're not, you're an idiot, I'm gonna be the greatest. And so, you know, these rough and tough disciples just kind of arguing and full of themselves, full of pride. And on and on it went. They all felt when they went into that room, that upper room for the Last Supper, nobody's feet were washed and they all felt that washing feet was beneath them. So when Jesus did it, it was hard to compute. Like, what is he doing? Why in the world would Jesus wash our feet? So Jesus tells them, a servant is not greater than his master. So hey, fellas, if I'm doing this, I'm your master. Guess what? You ought to be doing this too. So the disciples were confronted by Jesus' radical humility, and, and, and this, this wasn't some one-off teaching, by the way, this, this idea of humility and servanthood and all that. This was central to Jesus' message. Jesus said in Matthew 23, 11, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Greatness in the kingdom looks a lot different than greatness in the world. So Philippians 2.5 says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count it equality, equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Christian, have that mind in you, the mind of Christ, a foot washing mentality. How can I serve you? How can I get the dirt off of you? How can I help you? Not how can I get above you? How can I climb over you? How can I get ahead of you? This is what the kingdom is made of, you see. So Jesus says, if you know these things, John 13, 17, if you know these things, okay, knowledge, blessed are you if you do them. It's one thing to know them, it's a whole other thing to do them. Authentic Christianity isn't merely pious platitudes and knowledge and theology and doctrine and all the rest. It's putting God's word into play. It's, it's getting the rubber onto the road. The blessing isn't in the knowing, the blessing is in the doing. So the leaders of Israel, they came to that realization. They read it in the Bible and decided, we've got to do this, and so they did. The leaders spread the word to all the families to go get, you know, 
go get your branches and all of this for our national week-long camping trip. The Feast of Sukkot is on, baby. Go down to Sportsman's and, and uh, you know, gear up. So the Feast of Sukkot, or Tabernacles, was the first of three required feasts for the religious Jew. So, the last of the three, actually. So, religious Jews were expected, no matter where they lived, to travel to Jerusalem three times a year for three feasts. The first feast was the Feast of, uh, feast of Pesach, or Passover. The second feast was the Feast of Shavuot, or uh, Pentecost is our modern translation. It means 50. So this feast happened 50 days after the first feast of Passover. And then the third and the final feast was Sukkot, or booths, tabernacles, huts. And it literally means a temporary dwelling. So Israel hadn't been keeping these feasts for over 100 years. And so when they came across it in Scripture, they're going, whoa! But now the leaders, their hearts are attuned to God, and it was time to start doing what God actually said in His Word. Time to start walking with God again. So there's three required feasts, and they paint a picture for us, and they form our outline this morning, a beautiful picture of our journey uh, as human beings who are reconciled to their makers. So three things to consider. First of all, number one, the way out. Secondly, the way in. Thirdly, the way forward, all pictured by these feasts. So number one, the way out, and that's Passover, Passat. So the Feast of Passover, many of you Bible students know this, but some of you don't. The Feast of Passover commemorates the deliverance of the Hebrews from slavery to Egypt. So God had sent a deliverer, Moses, to, to set his people free. This was done through a series of plagues that, uh, that God sent upon Egypt. Nine plagues had been sent, uh, you know, turning water into blood, frogs, lice, uh, pestilence, boils, hail, low, I mean, just nasty. It must, must not have been fun living in Egypt uh, during that time. Just nastiness everywhere you look. Still, Pharaoh refused to let the Hebrews go. So the 10th plague would be the one that would pry Pharaoh's grip off of God's people. God would send the destroyer, the, the angel of death, some people call it, uh, to go through Egypt and kill the firstborn son in every home in Egypt. The firstborn son obviously would be the oldest son. So the angel of death is on a certain night is going to go through Egypt and kill the oldest son of every family in every home in Egypt. This is the 10th the judgment. Now the problem was the Hebrews lived in Egypt, Right? So how would the firstborn sons of the Hebrews be spared this judgment? Because if the angel of death is cruising through the land and exacting judgment, then how would, how would he know? So God told Moses, here's what you do. 
Each household of Israel, in order to escape the judgment, needs to take an unblemished male lamb on the 10th of the month of Nisan, keep it up until the 14th, and in the twilight of that day, around 3 p.m., you're to kill the lamb, you're to sprinkle its blood on the doorposts of the house, and, and then consume the lamb that was killed. So that night, the destroyer, the angel of death came, killed all the oldest sons in Egypt in the homes that didn't have the blood of the lamb applied to the doorposts. When the destroyer came to the homes that had the blood, it passed over. It did not go in. This is the judgment that caused Pharaoh to let God's people go. Passover commemorates this event. Passover commemorates the way out of slavery, the way out of bondage. Passover was to be celebrated by God's people from that year, every year forward. Flash forward 1,500 years and John the Baptist is calling people to repentance and baptizing people in the Jordan River and John the Baptist is a sensation in Israel. Everybody's talking about him. And one day, John's baptizing and he sees his cousin who happens to be Jesus walking towards him there at the Jordan River and he says to everyone, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It was a clear reference to the Passover. And the Passover was, was pointing ultimately to a much greater deliverance than that of the Hebrews from Egypt. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, would be crucified on the cross for six hours, dying at 3 p.m., the same time the sacrificial lambs were sacrificed in the temple. The Passover lamb was the way out of bondage of slavery in Egypt. For the Hebrews then, Jesus Christ, the Passover lamb for the whole world is our way out of certain judgment and certain damnation. Jesus said himself in John 3.18, whoever believes in him, that is Jesus, is not condemned. Placing your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ is, is in effect applying the blood of the lamb, Jesus, to your life. Death and judgment were coming for you. It was inevitable until Jesus saved you. Jesus shed blood, saved you from that certain judgment. Now you may say, as many people do, or at least think, I'm still breathing. I'm doing the best I can. I'm trying to live a decent life. You know, maybe God will God'll have mercy on me in the end. I hate to break it to you, but that ship has sailed. The next line of John 3.18, whoever does not believe is condemned already. It's not a matter of if. <laughs> You're condemned apart from Jesus and his blood. Hebrews 9.25 says, it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. That's a hard reality. So Jesus is the only way out of that certain condemnation. He's our Passover lamb, you see. 
It may seem archaic or simplistic or even foolish to you as it does to many, but God was very purposeful in how he chose to save human beings. 1 Corinthians 1.23, Paul says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So yeah, you may scoff at it, but it's God's power and wisdom. And it's your only way out. It's your only way out. One final note on this point. The Passover lamb that was slain, his blood applied to the doorposts, they were to then eat. They were to then consume the Passover lamb. Jesus said, or said of Jesus in John 1.12, to as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the children of God. So it's not enough to admire him. It's not enough to believe in him in your head. It's not enough to even try and live by what he says. He must be received. He's the bread of life that must be consumed. Passover is the way out. Secondly, number two, the way in. That's the feast of weeks or Pentecost, we would say. So Pentecost means 50. So the Feast of Pentecost starts 50 days after Passover, technically after first fruits. Um, first fruits, <laughs> this is tech, you'll, you will be tested on this. So I expect you to just capture this granular detail here. First fruits was the day after unleavened bread, Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was the day after Passover. So Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits. The way I like to think of it is this way. Jesus was crucified on Passover, in the grave on unleavened bread, and rose from the grave on first fruits. Fifty days from first fruits is Pentecost. After Jesus had risen from the dead... And, and hung around the earth for another 40 days after that in his resurrected body, meaning it was now exactly 10 days before Pentecost. He told, told his disciples, don't leave Jerusalem. I want you to wait here for the promise of the Father. Okay, so don't leave. Acts 1.8 says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So the outpouring of God's Spirit would happen on the day of Pentecost. The Spirit was given not only to empower those 120 disciples who were waiting in that upper room, the Spirit was given also to draw a world, to draw people, to convict them and bring them to Jesus. Jesus predicted it in John 16, 7. I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. If I don't go away, the helper, meaning the spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So Jesus says, I got to go, and it's to your advantage. 
Because if I don't go, I can't send the Holy Spirit to you. Ten days, Jesus ascends into heaven. Ten days later, day of Pentecost, the Spirit is poured out. A Spirit-filled Peter comes out of that upper room. He goes out and preaches, and 3,000 people are saved. Now, those 3,000 people have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. Because the Holy Spirit had gone before that crowd to convict them. We might say to convince them. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convince people of their sin, of their need for righteousness, and of the judgment that is to come. It's not our job. We're declarers of good news. We're sharers of the gospel. The Holy Spirit is the one who has to actually convince people that they are sinful, deserving of damnation. Well, 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. In one spirit. We've all been baptized, immersed into one spirit. Truly I say to you, Jesus said in John 3, 3, unless a man be born again, he will never see the kingdom. Unless a man is born of water and the spirit. Water, natural birth, the spirit, our spiritual birth. When a person comes to Jesus, there is a spiritual birth in their life. And, and some of you can remember that moment. And, and when you opened up your heart to Christ, and maybe it was at a church service like this, or maybe it was a friend who shared Jesus with you and prayed with you, but you knew that a light turned on inside of you. You all of a sudden saw things differently. You all of a sudden were awakened to the reality of God, that God wasn't some distant old man on a rocking chair somewhere who, you know, had nothing to do with you, but all of a sudden God was aware of you and God loved you. I remember being so overwhelmed with the knowledge that God loved me. And it wasn't a, oh, I hope he loves me. It's like, I know he loves me. I, I feel it. I know it. Because the Holy Spirit had shed abroad the love of God in me. The Spirit of God. I'd been baptized into the Spirit, into the body, and now I'm awakened to the things of God. I'm awakened to God and His love for me. When a person comes to Christ, their dead spirit is quickened and made alive. They had been dead to God, but now they are alive to him. Romans 8, 9 says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. You're in the, if you're a Christian here today, you're in the spirit. 
In fact, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. How do you know that you're a Christian? Is it by the confession you make? Well, not necessarily. Paul says, here's how you know if you have the Spirit of God in you. Romans 8 says the Spirit of God in you uh, testifies, tells you that you indeed are God's. It's a spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba. And so he assures us, do you have the Spirit of God in you? So the way out of judgment, Passover, the cross, the way into God is the Spirit. That's Pentecost. Thirdly and lastly is the way forward. And that's the Feast of Tabernacles. That's what Tabernacles represents. As we mentioned, Tabernacles is the seven-day camping trip for all the families of Israel once a year. They would go to the hills, gather their materials, mainly branches, in order to build this hut for their family. They were to leave space in the roof to be able to look through it and see the stars at night because those were the same stars that were hanging over Moses. Those were the same stars that were hanging over Joshua, you know, 1,500 or 1,000 years earlier. And so they were to think about and talk about the Exodus. What did God do for his people? The Exodus was the, was the in-between phase for God's people. They were set free from bondage in Egypt, but they weren't home yet. They weren't in the promised land yet. So what did God do in those days, in the in-between time? Well... Like us, we've been saved. If you're a Christian here today, the Spirit is in you. But we're not home yet. We're living in the in-between. So what did God do for his people then? It mirrors what God does for his people now. Number one, he led them. He led them. Exodus 13, 21, the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day or by night. The pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So if you can just imagine in your minds these giant pillar-shaped cloud in the day, pillar-shaped, just giant fire in the sky at night. I mean, stunning, right? I mean, just this, this cylindrical, giant pillar of cloud, pillar of fire, and, and when it moved, you knew it's time to move. And when it went this way, you knew it was time to go that way. Now, some of you are going, man, I wish we had that today. I have the hardest time figuring out which way to go. Discerning God's will. What, what should I do? I don't know what to do. I suggest to you that God has given us everything we need to discern his will and follow his lead it's probably a lot simpler than what you think. We have an internal pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire leading us. 
Romans 8, 14, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. As many as are led. Well, that's my problem, Fatness. I was just, just telling you I have a problem with that. I don't know which way to go. I don't know what God's showing me to do. Well, listen, you're, you're putting a little too much pressure on yourself here. God's people, Paul says, are being led by the Spirit of God. Well, but I wish he would give me a sign. People typically think that if God would just show them a sign, they would, they would just trust and follow him. God essentially says, trust and follow me and I'll show you the signs. <laughs> So, so, for instance, famous, famous passage, trust in the Lord with all your heart. So trust. No, trust isn't a sign, is it? It's, it's something that we do, something we offer to God. Trust. Okay, I, can, I think I can do that. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and then lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. Not he might, not you're too stupid, you'll probably miss it. He'll show it to you, you'll miss it. No, not it. Trust. Lean not on your, your rational brain and your rational thinking. Acknowledge, yada. Know personally, be intimate. Walk with, pray, cling to God. Trust in the Lord. And he will unfold his will in front of you without looking for signs. You will know the signs that you're walking in his perfect will because peace will umpire in your heart. Oh, pastor, but it still feels like I'm, I'm in the dark on what I should do. I have this decision to make. I don't know what to do. Well, well Psalm 119, verse 105, your word is a, it's a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. So the thing about a lamp in those days, David's days, who wrote that, it doesn't cast light very far. So, so if you're walking a path in the middle of the night and you have a lamp like David had, you're only going to see about a step or two forward. That's it. So, so you have to just be sure, okay, I know next, this is the next step, next step. Because God's word is shining light upon my path. And so I can't run out ahead because I'll be in the darkness again. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep in step. They didn't have the, the high-tech flashlights that we have today with the 10,000 lumens that can burn through metal, you know, or whatever. And so through his word, God will give you enough light to see the next step. He will. And he's always with you. He never takes his eye off of you. He's continually counseling you. Man, if, if more Christians understood this, that God is continually counseling us, like Psalm 32, 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. Okay, that's a promise that God's gonna show you the path of his perfect will. I will instruct you and teach you the way you should go. I will counsel you 
and guide you with my eye upon you. So Crystal, what are you worried about? God is much more able to lead you down the path of his perfect will than you are to figure out what the path of his perfect will is. So God's not saying figure it out. He's saying, trust me. He's saying, you know, lean on me, surrender to me, and I'll take care of it. I'll unfold it to you. Jesus, when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, <laughs> he didn't say, I'll show you the way. He said, I am the way. I am the way. So acknowledge me, cling to me, hold on to my robe, and just go where I go. And you will end up exactly where you need to be. And we know his voice. If you're a Christian and you've got his spirit, you know the voice of your shepherd. Jesus said, so my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Sheep know the voice of their shepherd. We're in much better shape on our journey home than the Hebrews in that day, in my estimation. We have way more going for us than a pillar of cloud and pillar of fire. We have God in us. We have his word before us. Well, he led them, but secondly, he fed them. He fed them. A couple weeks into the journey, people are complaining about the food or the lack of food or whatever. They began to long for the good old days in Egypt when we were slaves and they used to beat us. At least we got hunk of meat every now and then back in Egypt. So they're complaining. God tells Moses, I'm going to rain down bread from heaven every morning. Tell the people that, that they can then gather enough uh, of the bread, of this, this new food that I'm going to rain down, they can gather enough for one day, but no more. So the people go out of their tents on that first morning, and they find this flaky type sub substance. It looks like frost on the ground. And somebody says, what is it? Manna, in Hebrew, literally is what is it? That's what manna means. So... The name stuck, <laughs> and they ran with it. Branding wasn't their strong suit back in that day. So, though they were told not to store it up or to hoard it, of course, a few people did that anyway, and the manna turned into worms, and, and it, it just stunk. I mean, just intense, nasty, nauseating stench in the tents of those who hoarded the manna. Listen, Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily, daily bread. Jesus is our daily bread. He is our manna. After Jesus fed the multitudes with fishes and loaves, they, they followed him across the Sea of Galilee, and the first thing Jesus said when he saw them coming, he said, you guys, you're seeking me because you got a belly full of fishes and loaves. That's why you guys are coming. Don't seek the food that perishes. Seek the food that endures to eternal life. And they're like, what? 
And then they said, well, give us a sign. Give us a sign that you're the one. Our fathers ate manna, they said. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. I am the manna. Christian, you are living in the in-between. Jesus is your manna. Humble yourself in the morning. To get the manna, they would have to stoop down, wouldn't they? They would have to get down probably on their knees and get that manna scooped up. And they could only take enough for the day. You could carry it over. So the next day they would have to humble themselves again and get the manna enough for the day. So, so well, I go to church, man. That's, I got my one day. All right. You're going to try and scoop up all the manna you can in an hour and a half at church. So that by the time Friday comes around, you think, you think you're going to be in good shape. Listen, a lot of Christians struggle because they're not feasting on heavenly manna. The wise Christian seeks the bread of life every morning. The wise Christian has no problem stooping down and humbling him or herself to get the manna. We live in the in-between. We're on a lifelong camping trip. And the Lord promises to provide for us and protect us and to bring us home safely. We have his promise on that. So here, we'll close, we'll close here. So Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, we know that if the tent, the tabernacle, the booth, the Sukkot, that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. We, if this tent, this tent right here on this camping trip is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house that's made in the heavens, eternal. For in this tent we groan, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. We want to ditch this tent and we want the eternal, the eternal dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. A guarantee. This tent is for navigating the in-between. And when this tent gives way, there's an eternal dwelling place for us that awaits, an immortal body. And so we groan right now. 
We groan at the, the, you know, the war and the pain and the lunacy and the just all the stuff that's going on and the stuff that's happening in our own lives personally, the conflicts and the fights and the, all that we groan longing for the day where mortality puts on immortality and the Lord wipes away the last tear from our eye. Death is swallowed up in victory and joy is full and never wavering. The reason that this is possible, that if you have the spirit here this morning that you know that you have eternal life, the reason is John 1:14. The word, the Logos, Jesus Christ became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, camped among us. He went on his, God himself went camping on earth so that we, fallen people, could be brought out of Egypt into the people of God and make it through our in-between time. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the, the word this morning, and we love how that you very dramatically portrayed to your people back then in 1500 BC and onward, and then reviving this somewhat obscure by that time, this obscure feast, the Feast of Sukkot, or tents. And that these men seeing it in your word, go, man, we need to do this. And then, and then they're awakened to the truths that it, that it conveys. And they're enriched by it. They learn more of you through it. So thank you, Lord, that we too who are on this, this exodus, this journey, this sojourn, this in-between time, Lord, continue to strengthen us with manna. Continue to lead us, which we know you're gonna do, but Lord, help us to yield to you and trust in you more so than to try and figure out your lead <laughs> as so many of us are wont to do. And then, Lord, as we groan a bit in this life, I suspect there's groaning in some of our lives this morning. It's a good kind of groan even if it's being generated from the, some of the uh, trouble that we're in right now. It's a groaning that keeps us cognizant that there's a better day coming, that we're on our way home, that we're moving and on our way to the city that's not made with human hands, the city of our God. So, Lord, for those who are carrying burdens right now, I pray that you would just lift the burdens. And Lord, the burden of uh, 
marriage difficulty, Lord. Maybe it's struggling with depression and sadness. Or maybe it's financial pressure, not seeing a way through. Maybe it's a, a health thing. Lord, there's so many things so many things that can come our way in this in-between time. But you've promised to be our all in all and to help us to meet every challenge. That we can even be of good cheer in the midst of our challenges. So right now, Lord, would you lift the load of your people? Christian, let the Lord lift your load. He loves you. He's pleased with you. You're his son, you're his daughter. Christians, cast your care. Cast your care right now. If you're not a believer here this morning, if you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, I want to invite you right now to do that. And the Bible says that if you confess him as Lord, believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And so the, the confession is not a magic formula or a magic prayer. It's a, it's a coming to Jesus just as you are. And then it's a receiving of him. It's a receiving of Christ. And in that moment... God awakens you by his spirit and you become alive to God in a way that you never were. If you're ready to give your life to Christ this morning, raise up your hand right now. Raise it up and I'm going to pray with you to receive the Lord. God bless you, young lady back here. Anybody else? Today's your day. Is the Spirit of God in you? If you have a hard time answering that question, then this is the step you need to take, a step to trust in Christ. Anybody else? If you raise your hand this morning, I want you to pray this prayer after me. Say, Lord Jesus, I believe in you that you died on the cross for my sin and rose from the dead and are coming back again. Come into my heart and my life. Wash away my sin. I receive you now by faith as my Lord and Savior. I give you my life in your name. Amen. Amen. Yeah.